Good morning again. So glad to have you all. Let's hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 119. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that came from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes. As one rejoices in great riches, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. The word of the Lord. Excited to have you all today. And uh, we've got a couple of weeks here that we're just spending before we start a summer series. We're starting that uh, in June. Um, but I want to talk about a different heart that connects from last week's talk on a different God. I'm glad you're here and part of this. I hope you'll take notes and, and follow along as we really get into the heart today. And so today's going to be pretty introspective. I'm going to ask of y'all a lot today. I'm going to ask that you don't point fingers. I'm going to ask that you don't play guilt. I'm going to ask that you look within yourself. You know, we've heard in our lives a lot that there is the longest distance anyone will travel in life is 18 inches between our head and our heart. It's a great idea. It's this idea that what we know and what we believe, it takes all our life to get that into our heart. I like the idea. I think I struggle with that idea. I think we all have. The things that I know to be true, the things that I want to do, getting them actually to be part of who I am. It's a helpful analogy. But really, is there an actual conflict when it comes to how God thinks of us between what's here and what's here? We seem to believe that there is some tension between the two. But biblically, the ancient Hebrew writers had no idea of such a conflict. Because ancient Hebrew writers didn't even have a word for your brain. They believed everything came from your lev or your lavav, which is your heart. Everything. Think about this. In ancient Hebrew, since there's no word for brain, the Old Testament writers believed that the heart was the place of understanding and knowledge. It was also the place of emotion and feeling and hurting. The heart was the centerpiece of all those things. It was also the place where we found our intellect. The phrase, to have a broken heart, comes from ancient Hebrew. Proverbs even speaks of wisdom, not coming from our mind, but flowing from the heart. Solomon affirms that in some of his writings, in his wisdom, where he says, discernment is a matter of the heart. Israel, and we too know what it means to have our heart melt in fear. Your heart to the ancient Jews was the place for intellect and feeling and all that. It was also the place where you experienced great joy. The word happy in Hebrew means to be good of heart. The ancient Jews then believed that everything was there, including all that that I just said, but also affection. To have the desires of your heart, to have affection for somebody, that came from this middle thing 
They knew that hearts could be injured. They knew that people could have heart attacks, but what they believed was that there was no place for a brain. Everything centered from the heart. Our motivations, our knowledge, our feelings, our emotions. That's why Deuteronomy says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mayod, your muchness. Don't even mention the brain. And those things are not in opposition to each other. The idea is that out of the heart, all things should flow. Everything should come together. That we should be a unified person that are giving glory to God. Two passages in your Old Testament sum this up so well, this idea of a heart and what can come from it. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Or other versions say, above all else, guard your heart, for it is a wellspring of life, which can be really good, right? Proverbs is taking this positive twist and saying, your heart is a wellspring. It can bring life to other people. They're picking up on desert imagery that it can bring out streams and feed people and give people and quench their thirst. But then Jeremiah 17, 9, this other passage I want to show you today, has almost the opposite message about our hearts. Jeremiah, in almost opposition to the Proverbs, says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart, to the biblical writers, is the place where it all begins. And we all know this, as Barry just illustrated with our kids, that our parents, we got some work to do. Apparently, they want hard-heartedness. <laughs> Cynicism, yeah, you know, <laughs> got some work to do. But the heart is this place where everything flows, good and bad. It can be a wellspring of life, and at the same time, it can be deceitful above all else. And we know this to be true. Sometimes that can happen back to back in the same moment, almost simultaneous. That's why out of our hearts, we can sing praise and say, in Christ alone, my hope is found. And then in the next moment, murmur or mumble an insult at a brother or sister. We've all experienced that, where we've had our hearts turned towards God. And then in the next moment, because we haven't fully replaced our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, we turn and curse God. I'll never forget one of the greatest weeks of youth ministry I ever had. It was the last ministry trip, last mission trip I ever took with my youth ministry in Edmond. It was our 10th trip together. I was on a spiritual high. We had had three baptisms of local kids at this mission point we were at in Colorado. Our kids had done awesome. I had seen our young ladies sit down and study the Bible with another young lady, bring her to faith. It was unreal. It was so awesome. We had to divert on the last day and drive out of our way to drop a kid off, which I was a little bit perturbed about that we had to do that. I like, I'm not a journey as part of the destination type guy. I'm destination is the destination. Let's get there and shut up, right? <laughs> Anybody with me? Amen, right? So I'm ready to get back, but I'm on this spiritual high. And we get into Pueblo, Colorado, and we pull into this gas station. We drop this one kid off. It was getting picked up by his parents in Colorado. 
and everything's going great. I get the kids back in my van, and my kids were the last ones to get on the van, and every other van, all other five vans, we had six vans, five vans had taken off, and they're already on I-25 heading south. And I'm kind of a little bit, well, I got to get out of here, and I could not get back on the, on the access road. It was too much traffic. And at this convenience store, there was this road off to my right that I was like, well, I'm just going to get on that road. I noticed that there was a one-way sign on this little road, but I looked, and there wasn't anybody coming. So I backed up the van a little bit, and I start going down this one-way side to get out so I could get on the access road and get on I-25 South. Well, right as I get to the end of this one-way street, where I'm about to finally not be doing something illegal in a church van, this other guy pulls up, and he wants to come down my road to get in the convenience store. I wait 30 seconds or so, Soon he gets pretty animated. He's doing this with his hands. There may have been a lot less than five fingers being pointed at me. He was doing some things with his hands. I'm getting a little perturbed, a little bit, you know, anxious, thinking I'm going to get in a fight. This, guy's, this guy looks angry, you know. So I put the van in reverse. I start backing up. And I had been in youth ministry at this point for 10 years and had never wrecked a church van. And I was on this great spiritual high, and I'm backing up. And I remember everything that the kids always tell me. There's a sticker in every van you ever buy for a church. It says 90% of all accidents happen in church vans while backing up. I thought, well, not with me. I'm 100% free every time I got into church vans. And then I'm backing up, and the next thing, wham, I nail a light pole. Well, I turned into Yosemite Sam all of a sudden. I don't know if that hits you, but racking, fracking varmints started coming out of my mouth, and I get out of the van, and I'm upset. I had gone from spiritual high to Yosemite Sam. <laughs> I was so mad. A heart that was being turned to flesh can instantly sometimes be turned to stone, can't it? So what hope do we have? Andy Stanley says this. He says, everything we experience is processed through our hearts, the good and the bad. Life comes at us from all directions, but it gets channeled through our hearts. It makes sense, doesn't it? Everything does. So we get bumps and bruises through our hearts. We get good and bad all through our hearts. So how can we be people with hearts of flesh, with different hearts? Because everything we do emanates from our heart. We live, we parent, we lead, we relate, we romance, we confront, we react, we respond, instruct, we manage, we problem solve, and we love all from our hearts. And if you have anything in common with other people today, I'm going to assume, then we all know how torn our hearts sometimes can be. So the question for today is how can we have new hearts? Different hearts, hearts uncorrupted by the world, hearts that are totally given to God. Twice Ezekiel brings this up. Actually, I'll get, before I get to Ezekiel, I want to remind us of this passage, Psalm 51. How do we have a new heart? David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, pins these words and he says, Create in me a pure heart. Or, you know what the word for Hebrew means for pure? Brand spanking new. That's Jake's version, Jake's interpretation. Spanking's probably not in there, but brand spanking new. Create me a new heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me.
And thanks be to God that that's exactly what God wants to do. Twice in the book of Ezekiel, he will say this. This is on page 572, if you got a, a Bible that was from back there. He says this, with hope for the future of his people. His people have, have basically lost their way. They're worshiping idols. They're getting taken into captivity. And he says, thinking forward, thinking about the future, he says, I will give them a new, an undivided heart. And then I will put a new spirit in them. I'll remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. And then again, in chapter 36, he says, I will give you, that's a y'all passage, I will give y'all a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. And be careful to keep my laws. Now we all know, just as my youth group example <laughs> reminds us of, that we on our own have no hope of changing our own hearts. By the time we reach adulthood, and maybe for some of us even younger, we have dents and dings in our hearts. We have places that we are becoming hard Maybe it was that you just grew up that way. Maybe your family of origin was a hard, difficult place. It was a place of callousness. Maybe that's what you were just taught. Or maybe the struggles and the hurts of life have pushed you towards having parts or pieces or your whole heart becoming like stone. The old adage is true. It's why there's so much hurt in the world is that hurt people hurt people, but I believe it doesn't have to be that way. I believe from these passages here in Ezekiel that when, join, when we join God, when we want what God wants, we can change. So I want to assume something today. I want to assume that all of us want to change. Or you wouldn't be here. Right? I hope that's true. One amen is, is good enough. I, I hope that that's true. Because a heart of stone, as this rock represents, about the size of a human heart, a heart of stone is impermeable. It's solid, it's lifeless, it's cold, it's heavy, it's dead. Stones are great for building things, houses, walls, fortresses, but stones are a terrible place to put the living God. He even says that in the Old Testament. Yahweh does not live in houses built with stone. The word became flesh, John tells us, and made his dwelling among us. It doesn't say Jesus became stone. So if we're going to build a house for God, individually and together, not talking about bricks and mortar, we have to want a heart of flesh. So I'm gonna ask you to take a heart test today. I'm gonna give you three quick attributes of a heart of stone and three of a heart of flesh and compare those back and forth. And I want you to really lean in today, not to point fingers, not to say, wow, that's an attribute of so-and-so in here, but to look within yourself. Because again, I assume that everybody wants to be here. 
to follow Jesus. That we're seeking and we want to grow. That there are things in our lives that we would like to see change. So let's be graceful to ourselves and let's lean into the transformation God wants to do in our life. So if you have a heart of stone, there's a lot of things that can follow, but I think one that sums up a lot of what a heart of stone looks like is bitterness. Nothing will harden your heart like being calloused over with unforgiven resentment. Bitterness in your life may exist because you did a wrong or it may even exist because you were wronged. It may not even be your fault. But bitterness is a problem because bitterness grows, right? Bitterness has this way of of moving deeper and deeper into who we are. Hebrews 12 talks about this. It talks about how don't let bitterness take root. Why? Because the Hebrew writer knows that bitterness has roots, it has tendrils, it has whatever you can think of it as tentacles. It is going to reach down and take a hold of your life. You know that's how it works. Hold a resentment very long, over a person, and that person's identity becomes what to you? It becomes the resentment. Oh, they're so-and-so. It becomes a trigger. So much so that every time you see that person, whether that's a person you know or a person on TV or a person that you're acquainted with or a close friend or a family member, bitterness will grow so much that when you see them, they are now defined by your bitter heart. See, bitterness... Because it has roots, causes debt. Bitterness works on a ledger system. A ledger system that you always think you're winning, right? It's a debt because when you're bitter, you think other people owe you something. I know this because I have been bitter before. We believe that he owes me, she owes me, they owe me because they wronged me. The enemy of the heart then slowly calcifies us. But God says this in Romans 13, 8. Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding. We often think of debt as money. How much debt? Do you think other people owe you in bitterness, in an unforgiven, unreconciled relationships? Do you sit somewhere this morning because you don't want to sit somewhere else because of bitterness? Let no debt remain outstanding except what? Except the continuing debt to do what? To have a heart of flesh. To love one another. For whoever loves has fulfilled the law. So the opposite of bitterness, the heart of flesh is learning to be teachable. Teachable people can't remain bitter. They may have bitterness for a while, but teachable people can't remain there because they don't let bitterness take root. That's what the Hebrew writer's saying. Don't let it become rooted in your life because you're going to probably be bitter. You're probably going to have some resentment, but don't let it stay. And if you're teachable, you're taking the posture of a learner. 
And it's hard to be bitter if you're always trying to learn from others, to understand, to sit at the feet of Jesus, taking on his way, his truth, his life, being humble. Teachable people are aware that they're a mess. Amen? Teachable people in a church building like this realize I'm here because I need God. As Brian so well said this morning, I'm here by grace. I'm here by adoption because I've been an enemy. Teachable people are are aware of their blind spots even, things they don't even see. And when somebody comes to them and goes, man, you're kind of a, you're over here, right? You go, probably. Because teachable people resist getting defensive. Instead, they lean in to listen and to grow. You know, it's interesting. I found this proven in my life, and I'm going to assume it's true in a lot of others, that what I will argue most vocally about is the beliefs I hold least confidently. I will argue most vocally about what I hold least confidently. Teachable people don't have to argue most vocal because they're confident that God is still at work. They're teachable. God's not done with me. Wouldn't that be a cool way to get over a lot of church conflict? Hey, man, you really bothered me. Hey, God's not done with me. Hey, man, you really bothered me. I know God's not done with you. Let's work this out because he's not done with me either, right? That's a heart of flesh. Next heart of stone is, is greed. Greed makes us full of hearts of stone. Now, before you tune me out because you're like, I'm not greedy, I'm not rich enough to be greedy, we're not talking about money. I'm talking about a different kind of greed. There are lots of ways to be greedy. We can be greedy in all sorts of ways, but where, if you were to kind of answer this, you can shout it out if you want to, where are we most greedy outside of maybe monetary things? Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Right? Time. No doubt. We all have the equal amounts of it, and we all rarely sacrifice it. I would like you to be honest with yourself. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on greed. I'm just going to ask you this question. The question to look at about greed with time is this. Do you manage the time God has gifted with you with in a way that glorifies him most? Are you stewarding time so that God gets the most attention in your life? We used to say about money, let us show you, you know, show us your checkbook and we'll know if you're greedy or not. We all know each other's schedules. Not too hard to look at. But the opposite of that, a stony heart's greedy, but a flesh, a heart of flesh is willing. That's a transformed heart that's no longer greedy with their time. I had these friends in Stillwater who, when we met them, they were this wonderful couple. Three young kids, just great, friendly people, but where they were at with Christ at the time was, was not great. They were nominal Christians at best. They weren't involved. They, weren't, they, were, they were greedy with their time. They were pretty selfish in the way that they lived their life. And, and the husband one time, he was confiding in me, and it was right after uh, New Year's. And he, he told me, he said, 
I want to change. And he said, here's how I've decided to change this year. And he, he said, my New Year's resolution is to spend the next six months saying yes to anybody that asked me to serve in the church. That was his New Year's resolution. I will say yes to any ministry opportunity that comes my way from the church. He had never done that in his life. So for the next six months, he and his wife and his kids, any, any opportunity that would come up that they were like, felt like we could do this, whether it was nursery or teach a Bible class, teach a kid's class, if it was to go serve at a, on a mission trip, they were like, it's in our six-month period, we're gonna say yes to it. I'll tell you, they had busy, busy life. But you saw them switch their busyness and they became busy with God. It completely transformed them. They got involved, they built relationships. They started leading a life group for us, a small group. Their small group had to multiply within three months because they started saying yes so much that they were inviting like 50 people. And we were like, you have a small church over there, you have to split your life group in half. It was amazing. It even led them during that period of time to start to pray over a seven-year period that led them to adopt a girl from Haiti because they started to say, I'm willing, God, here I am. Those three little words appear in your Bible over and over and over again. Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, all have a heart of flesh because they say, here I am. And the last one, is the heart of stone is compartmentalized. It's compartmentalized. We have boxes in our life, don't we? We have compartments. We have everything divided up into drawers. We even talk about it in this way. It's become acceptable to talk about your work life and your school life and your church life and I have a prayer life and our spiritual life. Why all the lives? It's like we have a drawer and we, our boxes stacked up, however you want to imagine it, and we just put everything into a nice little cubby and we divide up our life. And we believe this lie that by dividing up our lives and everything into nice, tidy little groups, we'll find balance and peace. But it's a lie, isn't it? Because a divided life is a divided heart. All of us have tried it. If you're probably outside of uh, 12 years old, you've probably in some way tried to divide your life up. One drawer we know will always get more attention than the other. And the problem with a divided, compartmentalized heart is that when everything's put in a box, so is God. Right? And so if I have God in a box, I can be pretty nasty and unchristlike over here when I want to be. I can act like a Christian when I show up in a church building, whatever the heck that is, and I can, I can do what I want everywhere else. But a heart of flesh is confessional. It goes along with being teachable. It goes along with being willing. Because a confessed heart, this is what I mean by this, a confessional heart is opening up new chambers of that heart. They're saying, God, I haven't let you into this part of my life or to in my marriage, or I haven't let you in to be the lead in the way I parent, or be the lead in the way that I serve in this youth group, or serve at the, at the high school, or the, way that I, or the way that I operate at work. A confessional heart opens up those chambers and goes, come on in. 
because I need your help here too, God. I have never heard of someone breaking a bad habit, starting a new good habit, getting over an addiction, restoring a marriage without confession. Because confession works on two roads. God, I need you. And brothers and sisters, I need you too. Because I'm opening up new space in my heart. A part that was once calloused. It opens up those drawers or those cubby holes and puts everything in one place and says, God, I've got one space in my life and I don't even want to put a box on it because it's your space and there's no box big enough to fill the living God. So I want to close with this. If you're a Christian, Jesus is in you. That's a truth. But he's not in you so much that he doesn't let you make choices, right? He gives us free will. And if Jesus has taken up residence in your heart, you may be only this morning letting him take rent. And it's time to let him have ownership. It's time to give him everything he needs. Everything he wants so he can do the most transformation in you that you never thought possible. 2,000 years ago, Peter preached a sermon near this Sunday. Today is Pentecost Sunday, guys. Did you know that? This is Pentecost. I'd like to see some tongues of fire in here, right? Right? This is Pentecost. 2,000 years ago, on near this day, Pentecost, feast of celebration, 50 days after Passover, Peter preached a sermon, and at the end of the sermon, the scripture says that people were cut to the heart. You know what they were? Their hearts were being turned from stone into flesh. Ezekiel 36 was coming true. And since that day, God has given us the gift that any day, he'll do that again. Any day. We're not, Pentecost isn't just a day. Pentecost is a way. Because the Holy Spirit's now available to anyone who wants it. Where God and the Holy Spirit are given space, walls come down. Walls of stone, walls of brick, walls of callousness, walls of bitterness, walls of greed, walls that we build to make God safe. If you need those walls to come down today, I want to remind us, man, we got out of this habit. <laughs> we got out of this habit. This is a safe place. I know that I had this conversation with some of you this week, and I struggle with it too. Some of us were taught that the front row or answering an altar call is a bad thing, right? I was taught that. Man, if anybody came forward when I was a kid, it was like, that guy must be terrible, right? And if a teen really did it when I was a teen, I was like, they must have got caught, right? <laughs> that is not true of this church family. This isn't a bad place. This is a place of praise. It's a place of thanksgiving. This is a place of going, God, you are good. 
no matter what's going on in our life because we serve the God of second chances. We serve the God who says, I'm not done with you, church family. Right? So if you need anything today, there is no judgment in here. And if you're like, well, I'm going to judge them, come forward, please. <laughs> we need to pray for you too. Right? Let's not be that way. We are all works in process, all in need of the Spirit to turn our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Let's stand together and sing.